You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray. Hi, everybody. This is Danny Anderson uh, one, welcoming you once again to the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, I work at Mount Aloysius College where I teach English, and I do this podcast in uh, my spare time. And uh, thank you for listening. Um, this is another episode uh, that you're joining us today about Infinity War. And I know it's going to be weirdly ironic to almost everybody that I know. I made a Facebook post when Infinity War came out about how I thought it was good but not great or something like that. And here it is. I've seen it three times now, and now this is the second show in three weeks that I've done about it. So for such a, for such a, a movie that I thought was kind of, uh, you know, pretty good, I've sure devoted a lot of my attention to it here lately. But in this case, it's called for. Uh, joining me today, um, the last, step, last time we uh, talked about this show or this movie two weeks ago, we ended up at a place where we're talking a lot about the environment and Pope uh, Francis's encyclical and, and such. And so I felt like that really kind of needed its own space and it opened up kind of a different facet of the conversation. So um, back with us from that original conversation is Kristen Philippic. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining me, um, not once, but twice. Uh, Kristen is the press liaison for the network, and so she's the one who handles all of our uh, you know, bookings for Christian Humanist Profiles, and she's helped me get a lot of guests here on this uh, program as well. And she, every once in a while, will appear uh, on one of the shows. You've been on the Christian Feminist Podcast uh, a couple times, right? That's true. Yeah. And so, yeah, now a couple times here. Uh, and joining Kristen and I is, once again, my wife, Kim Anderson. Kim, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, Kim is on here because uh, Kim's special passion, if you know her at all, is what? Do you want to tell us about that? Uh, sustainability in the environment. Yeah, Kim is a, an MBA. She's sort of out of the evil corporate world, but uh, she's one of the good ones. <laughs> and so she uh, um, has this sort of special interest in uh, in the environment. And so when this came up, it was really natural for her uh, to join. And I'm really grateful that she's uh, willing to do that um, as we kind of get into a bit more of a specific uh, topic about this movie than we talked about the last time with Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist Podcast. Um, just to really briefly recap what we did talk about, though. The last time uh, we talked about the kind of origins of this story, um, particularly its comic book origins. Nathan happened to know quite a lot about that uh, and kind of the roots of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how it all sort of culminated in this. Um, we talked quite a bit about the kind of doubling the connection between Thanos and Tony Stark as characters. And we both kind of... Um, we all kind of uh, read them as variations on neoliberalism. And uh, and so that was uh, part of that conversation. Ultimately, we talked about the political utilitarianism that, uh, that Thanos is demonstrating, but perhaps the rest of the Avengers are as well. And then we also no talked about the inability to imagine a world without capitalism. Uh, Thanos, is uh, his solution isn't to change the systems that are leading to, to a lack of 
products, a lack of uh, uh, resources for everybody, but just to get rid of people so the system can stay in place. And so we talked a lot about that as a kind of uh, a very kind of, um, how did we put it? Like a sign of neoliberalism. And, uh, and finally, we kind of ended up where we're going to continue today, the environmental and moral ramifications of this kind of anti-humanism that, that Thanos uh, demonstrates in this movie. Um, and so that's a, a good uh, you know, summary of where we were uh, a couple weeks ago and where we're going here. And so once again, we are going to spoil the movie. We'll be talking about what happens in this and other movies, perhaps. Uh, I imagine Black Panther will come up. And so if you haven't seen that one yet, uh, you might want to pause uh, in order to, to catch up on that. But this is a, a show in which we do spoil plots because that's the point of uh, talking about these things. So um, let's jump right in, though, and talk a little bit about some fuller context for the Laudato Si um, and how it has to do with consumption and Christian ethics. Um, Kristen, do you want to begin by just sort of summarizing that? And then, Kim, I think you have some things you want to say about it as well. Okay. Well, in a nutshell... The, the contrast between Thanos and actually a lot of modern conversations about environmentalism and sustainability, um, both of those seem to see humans as fundamentally the problem, um, that we consume too much, we take up too many resources, gosh, it would be better if we just weren't here causing problems, or at least they were drastically fewer of us. Um, and uh, Pope Francis 2015 encyclical Laudato Si takes that on pretty explicitly saying, no, 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 <laughs> um, this is totally the wrong way of thinking about things. And is also a cop out uh, because the, if what we need to do is significantly reform our structures and practices on both individual and national and global levels to be much more in conformity with nature and uh, in harmony rather than exploiting whatever we can. If we're saying, gosh, there are just too many people, that takes us off the hook from having to make all those hard choices. Uh, that's a great way of summarizing it. Um, and I think that the, using the term cop-out uh, is a really, I mean, that, that's a useful way to think about this. Uh, when we start blaming uh, other, that's basically you're blaming other people. No one wants to take themselves off of the grid, right? <laughs> We're talking about taking other people off of the grid. And uh, and, and so this is a, a kind of a moral abdication here uh, that Pope Francis, I think, is usefully pointing out here. Um, Kim, um, what strikes you about the Laudato Si? There was actually a quote that I pulled from a, which we might get to this in a few minutes, um, from the, the Kavanaugh presentation that you shared, which I think we'll get to in a little bit. But um, nonetheless, it's a quote from, from Laudato Si. Um, the technological, technological paradigm is as if the subject were to find itself in the presence of something formless, completely open to manip manipulation. Men and women have constantly intervened in nature. So throughout history, we've intervened in nature. But for a long time, this meant being in tune with and respecting the possibilities offered by the things themselves. So we were more in tune with nature in the past. It was a matter of receiving what nature itself allowed as if from its own hand. 
Now, by contrast, we are the ones to lay our hands on things, attempting to extract everything possible from them while frequently ignoring or forgetting the reality in front of us. And so I just think the the comparison there of, you know, throughout history, we always have been, um, as, as he puts it, in tune with nature or intervened with nature. We've been intervening with nature, um, but now we're more extracting nature and seeing it um, as almost something to exploit. And and I think he, throughout the, um, he, he talks about that, the intro is in just itself very long and very well written. Um, I mean, you know, he's the Pope. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he does a good job of explaining kind of the business case, so to speak, for caring about nature. And, and I think it's it's wonderful. There's a terminological thing that's interesting there, too, because, I mean, we talk about, what do you say, intervening with nature? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I mean, it is like, you think about the creation stories, uh, we are sort of part of nature. We're not, we're there to caretake it, right? We aren't there to use it. And, and, and that's sort of a, a distinction that modern society has kind of flipped on its head. Uh, and I think that the idea that seeing nature as a resource rather than an environment is, is key to what uh, is Thanos is doing. When we talk about his, uh, plan to solve the crisis of overpopulation and the lack of resources for everybody. Um, he's seeing nature wrongly, I think, um, not as something to kind of um, complement human beings, but to actually uh, something to actually support uh, creation, not just human beings in his case, because he's talking about the entire universe, but, uh, but it's actually something to support um, these other beings. There's like a, a hierarchy that he's putting these things into. And ironically, he's prizing the resource over the human being uh, at the end, because he would rather kill the human beings than change the way we view nature and the resources that it, that it provides there. Um, Kristen, do you have uh, other uh, follow-up thoughts on that? Oh, geez, that, that sort of summarizes it. I'm not sure I have anything else to add right now. Yeah, and I think that that's a really great way to just sort of jump off into just sort of some environmentally, environmental-ish sorts of takes on uh, on Infinity War uh, Part 1, whatever they're actually going to call uh, the second one. Um, and so uh, let's kind of move into a couple of ideas that we um, – Kim and I were talking about, we recently saw this again. This is the third time now that I've seen this movie. Uh, and so we recently saw it again. And, and Kim, you were talking about uh, this theme of self-sacrifice that stood out to you. And I, I want to kind of talk about that a little bit as a motif throughout the movie to set up uh, a kind of another environmental reading of it. So you want to talk a little bit about that, uh, what you noticed there? Sure. So there's a line that's, that's repeated and that stood out to me um, where – in the the beginning of the movie, they ask Vision to to or Vision actually suggests giving up his life, um, which you know is very Christ like, in order to save not just the world but the universe. Um, and and it, had they done that at that point, you know, a the movie would have been over, but b <laughs> you know they would have been able to save the universe. And um, forgive me for this, but I'm not a giant Marvel fan. So um, was it Dr. Strange said to him, we don't trade no, lives? That was Captain America. Okay, sorry. Yes, that's Captain, okay. I get those two confused. Sorry. That's okay. Um, Captain America says to him, we don't trade lives vision. And I think that to, to me, you could sum up the movie in in that theme. I think that theme runs through every storyline. Um, I think everybody is trying to trade lives in one way or another or is not trying to trade lives. Um, 
you know, in the very beginning, uh, when they find, when Quill finds, well, not the very beginning, but Quill's ship runs across Thor. Um, it's a distress call. There's a beautiful conversation where, um, uh, Gamora says, um, you know, Thor's like, well, we could get a, um, you know, maybe we could get a reward out of this. And Gamora's like, well, that's not the point, is it? Um, you know, and then Gamora asks Will to kill her to save the universe. Um, there are many times throughout the the movie where um, where that that is is you know is the theme. Really, that's what um, Thanos is trying to do. He wants to choose half of the lives. He wants to get rid of half of the lives in order to save or make a better quality of life for the other half of the lives. And I think that there's this contrast between when you look at Thanos, he believes he's doing good. He wants to make a better life for the half of the world that he's going to save. And really, Captain America is, it looks good. His his motives look good as well. Um, you know, but in my mind, I feel like if if you know, they if they had just given up his life, it would have saved the universe as well. But I I feel like you know, you know that that seems like a good motivation. But then in the end, what they did was they went into this this untouched utopian world that had been protected for a long time, and they ended up destroying it in order to do that. And and I think that you know they. In the end, they traded not just one life, they traded Vision's life for many, many lives and for the protection of this environment that had been that had been protected for a long time. Yeah, I love that reading. And I, let's hold off on the Wakanda thing, because I think that's what I want to build to, because there is that's kind of that the sacrifice of Wakanda essentially is what we see in this movie uh, where the final battle is in this movie. And I, I think that that really makes a lot more sense when you put. Uh, when you look at the base in which that's constructed and this idea of this heroic motif of self-sacrifice, sacrificing oneself for the benefit of other people. Now, that's ultimately like a distinction between the Avengers and Thanos, right? Thanos is not sacrificing himself. I mean, he does sacrifice something he loves in Gamora, right? But he does not um, uh, actually give himself up to save the universe yet. Maybe that happens in the second movie. I don't know. Right. Uh, but, Human sacrifice, I guess. Yeah. 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 So he's got a very kind of, um, uh, almost, it's almost like a pagan, uh, sacrificial ritual f- of salvation. Right. Uh, and so in the Avengers, on the other hand, they are all willing to sacrifice themselves. And even when, um, Captain America tells vision that we don't trade lives vision immediately reminds him that you did this yourself back in world war two, when you, uh, sacrificed your life to save the world, right? Uh, and so why are you, what's different about this? And then they, they come up with some sort of rationale for why, well, we might be able to do this another way, and that's how they end up in Wakanda. But yeah, that's a really interesting um, motif. And we see it in other places too, right? I mean, Spider-Man ultimately kind of saves the day on the ship with Doctor Strange, um, but because he's willing to sacrifice his life by staying on that ship when um, Iron Man told him to leave, right? So he, he's he got this sort of sacrificial spirit. Um, Iron Man, by going onto the ship, is giving up you know his life again in space like he tries to in the first Avengers. And so, yeah, there is a, this kind of common motif about being willing to sacrifice oneself. And in this movie, what's one of the things that's interesting about it is that they're not, 
able to, right? Uh, they try to sacrifice themselves and other circumstances won't let them, right? And so the only thing left at the end is Thanos's kind of universal sacrifice, this kind of like pagan ritual. And so, um, uh, Kristen, do you have thoughts on this, um, on this motif? It seems like a lot of the characters are willing to sacrifice themselves. They aren't willing to make the choice to sacrifice one of their team. Yes, right? Um, which is slightly but critically different. I think Captain America would have thrown himself on the line with no problem, but he's not able or willing or whatever to make the choice to, to tell Vision to do the same thing. And that's one of the ironic, it's almost a paradox, right? I mean, because how then does anybody actually do it if no one else will let them do it? <laughs> no one is, right. no, everyone's trying to sacrifice them, take one for the team, but no one else will let them do it. Everyone wants to kind of do it themselves. Um, the one exception is Dr. Strange does say, I will gladly sacrifice you guys to save the time stone right now he has some secret plan and he doesn't yes he, he doesn't because he looked into the future apparently and he sees uh, some secret plan that will i'm sure will be revealed um uh, later on and by the way i know that brett chase has asked us to do a whole series of these marvel things and dr strange is a really particularly interesting one to me so if anybody wants to jump in on a dr strange anybody out there listening or you guys uh want to jump in on a dr strange episode i would love to kind of uh explore that character a little bit but Kim, you were going to say something. Yeah, there's actually one of those stories that I would like to... And and the second time that we saw the movie, I, I had noticed this theme. And, and so the second time we watched this movie, I was literally a nerd in the theater taking notes, um, <laughs> having admitted to not being the kind of nerd that loves um, these movies so much. But um, I was literally taking notes. But but the one that I, I thought was perhaps the most beautiful, and perhaps it's because I'm currently the parent of a teenager, um, was the... Um, 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 and again, I'm sorry, um, was Quill and uh, the, the the stick uh, Gru? Groot? Groot. Groot. Um, Groot is a different story. <laughs> yes, Groot is yes, uh, despicable me, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, was Groot. I mean, Groot throughout the movie didn't look up from his his game yeah. the entire time and or really engage with what was going on around him. And then when it came to they were trying to create Thor's hammer. See, I got that one right. Um, they were trying to create Thor's hammer. He, um, they needed a, a, um, a handle, a, a handle a for it. Yeah. And he was like, um, you know, he then in that moment looked up and literally gave his left arm and Dan, you know, informed me kindly. And I knew this, but that, you know, his, his he was able to regenerate. But I mean, literally he gave his left arm yeah. in order to do that. Um, and then, and then the hammer would, you know, gained its power and was able to work and, and Thor was able to survive. But, and also in that moment, Thor was willing to give up his life as well. Uh, not, yeah, Thor. Um, and then, and then from that moment forward in the movie, Groot was, was engaged and fought and, and things like that. And so that was a transformative moment in the movie for Groot. And so I just thought it was a beautiful scene, um, you know, that exhibited this theme throughout the movie. Yeah, I think we might have shortchanged that that pairing. I know in the last episode, Victoria uh, Farmer had asked us to talk about the various pairings, and and um, 
I think we kind of shortchanged that. We kind of wrote that pairing off, that that Groot, uh, Rocket Raccoon, and Thor, I guess it's not a pairing. What do you call that? Grouping. And uh, and, and so we kind of, I think, wrote that one off and didn't quite give it the 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 t- attention it deserves because you're right, that little scene is is pretty interesting, right? And added to that, the fact that Thor is going, just for the possibility of creating this hammer or this axe, hammer whatever this thing is the storm <laughs> storm breaker is that what it's called his new his new hammer um just for the possibility of doing it he holds open that iris and takes the full mm-hmm. force of the star right and practically almost dies in the process just to have a chance to create this thing that might end up stopping thanos down the road right um and, and his reasoning is interesting uh when Oh, Peter Dinklage's character, I forget his, his, his character's name, the giant dwarf. When he tells him that it's suicide, uh, he said, well, so is facing Thanos without it, right? And so he has this, uh, um, kind of utilitarian reasoning for that sacrifice, but he does know that he has like one single chance and that he's willing to give his life up to take that chance. Um, again, this theme of self-sacrifice, right? And he uh, does like zoom into the, um, and kind of save the day in the battle. Ultimately, he's unsuccessful in stopping Thanos, but um, he does like kind of win the battle leading up mm-hmm. to that before that. Um, and so, yeah, that that whole I think that grouping, there is a little bit more to that than um, than I think we gave. I don't think we're quite fair enough to that last time. <laughs> and so I think there was a little bit more to that for sure. Um, and so uh, where do you have any further thoughts on that, Kristen, or should we move on to the, where we're going from there? Oh, I think let's move on. Okay. Um, the reason I, I brought that up, because I think it's interesting, because ultimately this is sort of an environmentally focused um, uh, episode about this movie. And so all of that self-sacrifice, the dynamics of it change because of them going to Wakanda to fight that final battle. And I think this is something that bothered you, Kim, I know, uh, when you, we, we first watched the movie, that they had to, in order to have a chance to sort of save vision's life this one guy's life in order to avoid that sacrifice essentially sacrifice an entire kind of untouched beautiful utopian civilization right non-western utopian civilization and so that really bothered you right and again i hadn't been incredibly familiar with the the marvel series so we went back and i watched um Black Panther and and got a little more familiar with it. But um, I mean, to me, I was I was crying during that that uh, part of the movie because it it just struck me as symbolic of what we do as a capitalist global society to um, I I, I wonder if it was overt, um, you know, representation of um, you know, they were, they were a black society and, in in our global society, very often the, the people that are producing our goods are, are non-white citizens of our, of our global economy. Um, and, and, and before we were producing goods in those parts of the world, they were also untouched parts of the earth. And, and I think that in order for us to have the, you know, the, the, stuff that we have um we go into the you know these parts of the world and you know we used to have produced things here and now we're producing things there and because of that we're sacrificing their health and their economies and um, maybe their economies are better now because of it but um certainly their health and their way of life and the the untouched 
economies, um, the, you know, the, the untouched civilizations have been changed because of us. And so to me, it was to sacrifice this one, this one life or to not sacrifice this one life and seeing them go in then and, and have this battle scene that just destroyed this almost utopian, untouched, protected world to me was just a, a representation of, of, you know, what I think globally we do on a consumerist society. So... Yeah, no, I th- I agree with that, and I think that it's it's worth considering that as a metaphor for that because when you think about that battle scene, I mean, you see the little whatever hyena dog alien monsters that are being released on Wakanda, whatever those things are, uh, and I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows the species. Um, so by all means, let us know what what I'm missing. But uh, the, you see those dog monsters jumping on people, right? And and but you don't really see human destruction as much as you would expect to in a battle scene like that you do see the destruction of landscape though quite prominently right trees being blown apart and fallen over there's those diggy wheel things that dig under the gravity field shield that they have Mm -hmm. uh that literally upheaves the landscape right and so it is an interesting um like metaphor for the exploitation of an environment, right? As much as of a people. And I think that that's, uh, I think, I think you're onto something, right? And so, um, Kristen, did you have thoughts on the, the, I don't know, the, the use and or misuse of Wakanda in, uh, by the Avengers, uh, in trying to save their, one of their own? I'm not sure it quite fits because because the whole idea of Wakanda is they are doing great on their own. Yeah. Um, but one of the points in Laudato Sea and in a lot of environmental conversations generally is that environmental degradation has the worst effect on the most vulnerable human populations. Yeah. Um, that you and I are probably going to be fine, but the, the peoples along the equator are going to be the first ones who see their uh, environment and culture and and surrounding world and everything really um, damaged or destroyed by climate change. Um, that that's a point we see a lot, and that, that's not quite the same as Wakanda, but it may be sort of in the same family. Yeah, it's almost like a metaphorical relationship, I think. Um, yeah, because. <laughs> Like Wakanda is like richer than anybody else, right? <laughs> kind of because of their technology. Just nobody knows. It's it's just isolated from the global economy, right? But what they are being, they are their resources are being exploited by the Avengers in trying to save um, Vision's mind, his mind stone, whatever's <laughs> in his head, right? And, and so um, and so it works on a more a metaphorical level, I think, more than a literal level, because I think you're right. And when you were just talking about people along the equator, it totally reminded me of Oscar Romero. We recently did an episode on Oscar Romero and some of his writings. And, and so he was very attuned to the way that you know his his people in uh, in South America were being exploited for the good of American capitalism right and, and he was like very open about the injustice of that and so i think he's actually uh, a really interesting resource to read what we're talking about uh, uh through and so i think that we have um uh, a really kind of weird contradiction then that's set up with the avengers plan to go to wakanda who's willing to open their borders and do it like wakanda is it's not 
as if Wakanda is without agency. They could have right. stopped. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they could have stopped Captain America and, and there's no way the Avengers could have, uh, could have gone in there without their permission. Right. So they had agency and they were willing to open their borders, um, th- to do this. But I think, um, I don't know. What's interesting is there's like an outsourcing of violence uh, that, that goes on in this movie. Uh, one thing that occurred to me in this third viewing <laughs> that didn't occur to me before is Tony Stark's plan when they when they get themselves alone on that spaceship on the way to Titan um, after Spider-Man figures out how to get rid of the Squidward guy. I forget his name. Um, they um, they trying to figure out whether they should try to return and go back to Earth or go to Titan or go to wherever this place, this ship is going and face Thanos there. Tony Stark's reasoning is basically, look, I saw what happened when this battle took place in New York City and lots of carnage happens in these kinds of battles. Let's take it to their world and have it happen there. Right. Uh, and so like that's like he's outsourcing the violence. Right. He wants the outcome of the of the battle, but he doesn't want to pay the local price for it. Right. And so um, in some ways, the Avengers themselves are doing the same thing by isolating the battle in Wakanda they're even if they're not I mean they are using Wakandan resources um, but they're also using just the space as a place to keep the battle away from Western society right uh, from from the white people and so uh, there is a way there is a sense in which there is something kind of icky about <laughs> about taking that battle to Wakanda and you know, to bring it back to the analogy, even though Wakanda was doing fine on their own and and the, you know, the third world countries along the equator aren't necessarily, we do take a lot of violence to, to draw your analogy. Um, there's violence for diamonds. There's violence for metals that are used to make cell phones. There's a lot of violence involved in um, extrapolating the minerals and things like that that we we bring then back to our, you know, first world countries for the, um, you know, the various things that we use and enjoy every day and don't think about. And we've got this almost shield up, you know, we have our own shield up because we don't think about it and we don't know about it. And so I think that, um, you know, maybe we're, maybe Wakanda is us, um, Mm. you know, on the other, on the other hand. Oh, holy cow. Okay. Are we going to do a third episode? Um, no. Just kidding. <laughs> Say no, no. We'll move on to another Marvel movie for you. But that's actually a really interesting. That's an interesting. We've yeah. Holy cow. Okay, I have. I'm thinking off the top of my head, but since Black Panther came out, Wakanda has become this symbol of something, right? That I wonder if Wakanda means entirely what we think it means. Uh, like whether what Wakanda is actually a symbol of is a really interesting, I would love for someone else smarter than me to, uh, to spend some time, you know, thinking about that. Cause that is really, that is really interesting. Um, and yeah, I don't want to spend half the show thinking out loud about it. So but I think you've, like opened up a really interesting conversation about what Wakanda actually does represent, whether it is utopian African pan Africanism, or if it's something more Western than that. I think that that's very interesting. Um, and so um, do you have other thoughts on this, Kristen, before we move on? Um, not on that point in particular. Let, let's move on to our next point. Okay. Because I think that, that all of this then, uh, I mean, I, the, the point I wanted to make is we have these kind of heroic Western ideals about 
I guess, heroism and self-sacrifice. And you even have this Christological uh, image of people sacrificing themselves for others, right? Um, That when it comes out, when it gets played out in this movie, what it actually looks like is something a little bit more um, uh, exploitive, right? <laughs> upon the, it's built upon the backs of brown people, right? In, in this case, and so I think that um, um, that's kind of where I was going. And so one thing that kind of bothers me generally every election season, when a, a certain kind of voting Christian has this sort of single issue about pro-life, right? And I, I I've, I've me and other people, I'm not the only person who claims this. I feel like that's a, a too narrowly defined because they're talking about abortion specifically and entirely. And I think that's too narrowly defined. And I think that this conversation and starting with the Pope's encyclical um, opens up a conversation about what being pro-life actually truly entails. Uh, and it's much more expansive than just the legality of, of abortion services, I think. Um, and so, Kristen, I, I know that I didn't get this outline out in that much time for you to think about these issues. I apologize for that. But uh, do you have any thoughts on what the Pope's encyclical, um, what the ramifications are for a truly pro-life philosophy? This is something where, at least officially, I think Catholics do it pretty well um, in ways that, that there are certainly there are certainly elements in the Protestant world that embrace a consistently pro-life position, but it's not as common. Mm -hmm. Um, And like most things, this may happen more in theory than in practice. But uh, I do think Catholic teaching is really pretty good at recognizing a value of life from conception until natural death which absolutely includes um, abortion and euthanasia, but is, is also a lot broader than that. Um, and in practice, unfortunately, 10 years ago, we used to say the values were abortion on one side and everything else on the other. And I think now it's more abortion and euthanasia on one side. Um, And I think that's a condemnation of both sides, really, mm-hmm. uh, because because very not always, absolutely not always, but often in practice, an appeal to the to a consistent ethic of life can often mean oh, concern about unborn human life isn't actually that that big of a deal, um, which is which I think is a mistake. And that is a very hard place to find ourselves in our current political climate. Um, But I I do think that the Catholic teaching, and this is not an innovation of Francis, this, you can certainly see a ton of this in John Paul's uh, Evangelium Vitae and plenty of other places, Mm -hmm. uh, sees, sees protection of unborn human life as absolutely critical, but it also doesn't stop there. And also includes, if not pacifism, a pretty restrictive understanding of just war and certainly a condemnation of capital punishment and various other points along the way. 
Yeah, and the Pope's encyclical like extends that to our economic practices as well. Absolutely. Right, and, and so and I think that that's where the other half of the party, or the other half of our two party system. I mean, uh, kind of fails in its utter embrace of capitalism and in its kind of to the wall defense of everything that calls itself capitalism. I think that that's where um, the, the, the strict pro-life voter often um, has too narrowly defined what pro-life is. Right. And so, um, uh, and so this whole like idea of like, we don't sacrifice a human life is very kind of close. Like when Steve Rogers refuses to kill vision, he's got this very kind of conservative evangelical Christian view of life right there. Right. Um, But his outsourcing of the violence to somebody else um, is also a violation of that same ethic. Right. Uh, And and he's unwilling or unable. He he doesn't seem to in the movie really kind of grapple with that. Right. Uh, And so, I mean, and at the end of the movie, what do we see? I mean, the very end, we see Thanos smiling at the sunset or sunrise, whatever that is. Uh, But right before that, we see Steve Rogers, kneeling over the body of, of vision ultimately who he was unable to save right and, and so um, I think that you have this uh, a really kind of interesting um, again metaphorical play, place to I guess consider the complicated nature of truly being pro-life I mean to mm-hmm. truly be pro-life it's going to require you to not just believe a thing and vote a way, but to actually change the way you live, right? Uh, and, and how many people are actually willing to do that, I think. Well, and I think one of the uh, the liberal, for lack of a better word, criticisms of the, the pro-life movement that only focuses on being anti-abortion is that, um, you know, many times, not in all cases, but... Um, the politicians who are focused on that take away free lunch for kids and benefits yeah. for mothers and things like that. And so it's like once the child is born, then let's also take care of the child and the mother and, and, you know, and the life once it's, once the life is there. And so I think that, I mean, it, let's not just talk about, you know, the, you know, all the other issues, but talk about, you know, the, the, the whole life and all of the political, nuances of of you know the the whole cycle of a of a life and and all of the um politics that go along with that and i think that's often the criticism um and and i think to bring it back to the environment since this is the the discussion that we're having um we had a somebody that came to our church a couple years ago and and um talked you know he worked for a um uh some kind of a an organization that helped helped women that were in crisis and were having, you know, babies and, and they were trying to talk them into keeping the babies and a great organization, I'm sure. But um, one of the things that he said, which kind of made me turn my head was he said, to me, this is the issue, the most impor- important issue that faces our generation. And, and I kind of stepped back and, and thought, uh, and it was almost like, this is the only issue that as Christians, we should think about was the way that he said it was in the context of his greater talk and and to me it's like you know there are 7.8 or 8 billion people on this planet and you know we're polluting the earth every day and if we would also think about that um you know there was significant research that says that we would have a better quality of life and less people would die and you know i have i'm not going to read it but there's information in front of me that 
talks about how um, breast milk is becoming polluted. And there's information out there about how the water in our taps has evidence of plastic in it and things like that. And so, you know, yes, let's care about the babies that are born, but also let's think about the or the babies that are unborn and, and let's, you know, let's work on that issue. But also, you know, the, the people that are born, let's think about the quality of life, um, and the, the health of those people as well. And I, th- to me, I think the environment and sustainability and all of the issues that come along with that are huge as well. And I, to turn your head at that issue, I think a lot of times we become bipartisan and we say Christian or Republicans care about the environment or, um, excuse me. <laughs> Republicans care about abortion and Democrats care about the environment. And we draw a line and we say, you shouldn't, as a Christian, you should be a Republican and you should care about this issue. And as a Democrat, you shouldn't be a Republican and things like, or Christian. Ugh. Um, sorry. Um, you know, I, yeah, Yeah. I, I think that, you know, as Christians, I think we should care about both of those issues and maybe we shouldn't necessarily draw party lines because I think both of those issues are very important. And if you care about the whole, the whole life, then I think both issues are important. And um, so, yeah. And then I think that Kristen's right um, to say that the Catholic church, I think at least sort of on paper, I guess, <laughs> uh, or in even in practice, like has a more consistent approach to these issues than kind of your main, not main line, but your sort of evangelical generic Christian. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that, um, the kind of, if I could use that as a transition, um, just, uh, the last episode that was just released was about the, the great John Carpenter movie, They Live. Uh, Carter Stepper joined me for that one. And Carter actually, in the course of that episode, introduced me to this, uh, Catholic theologian named William Cavanaugh. And, uh, and actually I, I found, uh, I've been like watching YouTube videos until I can get a book in uh, of his work. And so I want to, uh, I, I want to kind of play a little clip of a speech he gave um, at St. Mary's college. And, uh, and he's kind of, first of all, like he's very supportive of Pope Francis's uh, kind of critique of capitalism and, and its impact and its impact on the environment. Right. And so, um, but he also, he kind of makes a link, but he tries to find a line of consistency between Pope Benedict, uh, and Pope Francis. And, <laughs> and I think that a lot of people want to make like Pope Francis is this stodgy conservative guy who would have never ascended for anything that Pope, Pope Francis is doing. Uh, and he's trying to like, uh, push back on that a little bit. And if you can't, if I can't, I just want to play a couple, uh, a couple minutes of this little speech he gives. And he's going to quote, uh, Pope Benedict here a little bit, explain the connection and then talk about how these economic actual, these economic issues, this economic ideology that people support, um, is actually antithetical to the very kind of life issues that we're talking about. And it's ultimately because it's this exploitive economic practices, it is related to this environmental um, uh, concept that we're talking about today. So just uh, if we can just take a, a couple minutes here to, to listen to this. It's very, it's very great stuff. By state law, the exclusively binary model of market plus state is corrosive of society while economic forms based on solidarity, which find their natural home in civil society without being restricted to it, build up society. So Pope Benedict is in favor of improving exchange on the one hand, the market and public welfare, the state on the other. 
But he says what's really needed is the formation of alternative spaces that go beyond the logic of market and state. So in addition to recommending what he calls dispersed political authority, which I think is a great phrase, he calls for hybrid forms of commercial behavior. Space needs to be created within the market for economic activity carried out by subjects who freely choose to act according to principles other than those of profit. Isn't that great? Right? Pope Benedict XVI, uh, an amazing radical. Benedict, he, had, he advocates attention to scale, encouraging micro-projects that preserve face-to-face -face personal relationships that don't remain niche enterprises but evangelize the economy as a whole. So despite the frequency with which Pope Francis is contrasted to Pope Benedict XVI, I think they're really on the same uh, page here. They're both anxious to move beyond what Benedict calls the continuing hegemony of the binary model of market plus state. So Francis also critiques the reduction of economic activity to profits, whether it's corporate or state-led. He says, an instrumental way of reasoning which provides a purely static analysis of realities in the service of present needs is at work whether resources are allocated by the market or by state central planning, end quote. In both cases, the problem is the corporate manager or the state bureaucrat looking down from on high, deciding the fates of people, animals, the land, none of which the manager really knows, on the basis of what Francis calls the dominant technocratic paradigm that treats them as resources to be manipulated. Google images. Um, and I just, I, that's plenty to play there. And I think that that image at the end that he gives me is a perfect image of Thanos in this movie, isn't it? He's this sort of dominant figure from on high without any kind of, uh, attachment to the people whose lives he is ending, um, making these kind of technocratic managerial decisions um, based on purely looking at everybody and everything in the universe as a resource to be managed, right? And I think that um, I, I'm really intrigued by this guy's work so far, and, and I want to uh, explore that a little bit more. Um, Kristen or, or Kim, do you guys have any, any thoughts uh, to follow up with there? I have I have heard of William Kavanaugh. I've never read any of his stuff, so I cannot really comment on that in general. But I, I think a lot of what he's getting at is the idea of subsidiarity, that yes. to the extent possible, and it's totally not always possible, um, decisions should be made on the, uh, there should be at least a thumb on the side of the scale of making decisions on a small local level. So you're dealing with people who have names and faces and families rather than general abstract concepts. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it sort of reminded me of the very end of A Christmas Carol. Okay, interesting. <laughs> uh, where the, the reformed and converted Scrooge uh, goes to Bob Cratchit and says, I am raising your salary, I am doubling your salary. And he is not talking to the working class in general, yeah. but to this person who has a name and a face and he has seen his children. Um, and that is a different sort of relationship than a concern for the good of the working people as a whole. Yeah, 
Oh, that's and, interesting. And that's important. It is. And, and it's like, not only has he seen his children, he's seen his children die in alternative futures, right? And that's right. <laughs> that's it. But, th- but that's true, though, that he has some sort of um, personal stake then. Um, and I think that's a really great um, observation there. Um, Kim? Well, I have two thoughts. Um, the first is, so I teach global business and <laughs> am a, you know, an MBA and have a little bit of a business mind, but also... Um, you know, prefer small businesses and, and things like that. So, you know, having thought a little bit about this today um, and for a long time, I guess, I, I think that um, it's a little pie in the sky. Um, I feel like, you know, when I started teaching global business, um, I went into the class, you know, thinking, you know, it would be great if we could end globalization, right? But at the same time, if I could use a quick analogy, a few years ago, Dan and I um, took our kids to this Easter egg hunt where there were approximately a bazillion kids <laughs> and they accidentally set off the buzzer that was supposed to tell the kids to go or maybe the kids thought the buzzer went off, but the kids started racing into the field where they were supposed to pick up the Easter egg Easter eggs, and then they announced, no, kids, you're not supposed to go. How many kids do you think went back and stopped? None of them. I think globalization is a little bit like that. As much as I don't like globalization, and I think that, you know, let's stop globalization and pull the lever and say, nope, no more globalization. Let's stop producing things in third world countries. I have to be realistic and think that's probably not going to happen right away. Um, and so, you know, Thanos is sitting up on the, the mountain or whoever the evil corporate um, entrepreneur is that, you know, or CEO or whatever evil genius we want to think he is, he or she is. I think globalization and consumerism and capitalism are not going to go away anytime soon. So I think the better approach is to try to live within those and to try to change those systems. And so that leads me to point number two, corporate social responsibility is a growing um, growing field. Many of the large business schools, um, Harvard, Yale, Duke, have programs um, that are teaching these big business minds corporate social responsibility and unleashing their MBAs onto the field, onto the large companies. Um, Walmart has a believe it or not, ahead of corporate social responsibility. Um, so I think that we're going to start to see, instead of stopping co- globalization and capitalism, I think we're going to slowly start to see change in those areas. And so hopefully the Thanos sitting at the top of the mountain, instead of one- wanting to wipe out half of the world, is going to say, maybe we could plant gardens for half of the world. And maybe we could, and I think we are starting to see this. You're starting to see, um, you know, these corporations starting to do organic and, and things like that. And so I think you're starting to slowly see a change. Um, and so I think, I think the, I, the, even looking at the Pope's, um, you know, I think a little of, of, as much as I think it's great that he's writing this kind of thing, I think it's a little pie in the sky. So, um, those are my thoughts. It's definitely pie in the sky, right? Uh, and, and yeah, that's why it hasn't happened yet, right? And I guess, and we always fight about this, right? <laughs> So I guess so let's not fight on air, honey. Uh, but I, I guess that uh, uh, my fear and, and I guess my prediction for all of these programs is that it's a way to tame uh, and kind of deflate 
anything that stands in the way of profit. Like, I mean, that's what corporations exist for is to extract and maximize profit. Right. Um, and so all of these ways to kind of soften, I, I just feel like these are all ways to soften the public face of this profit machine um, so that the profit machine doesn't get derailed. Right. And, and, and so I feel like I'm, perhaps overly suspicious um, of of those motivations, right? And in the way, we had that fearless girl uh, episode oh, several months ago now. And, uh, and, and in the same way that I was kind of suspicious of those motivations, um, I, I'm equally suspicious. I mean, if you, uh, a corollary, this isn't the same exact situation, but it's uh, a corollary situation. If we want to say that uh, we need a more diverse representation of our ethnicities in America on American television, right? And so now we're going to be selling the same crap uh, on advertising just with mixed race couples, right? And so that doesn't solve the real problem, right? That we're selling crap. We're just softening it in a way that they can continue to sell the crap, right? And so I feel like capitalism has this way of just consuming all forms of dissent and making it work to perpetuate the profit machine. And I think that that's what um, uh, Kavanaugh is sort of highlighting in both Benedict and Francis's um, and, you know, work is that they, we need to seek, and it is pie in the sky. I don't know how you actually go out and do this. <laughs> I have no solution to this. You're totally right. Um, but uh, you do need to find some way to imagine a world in which profit is not the ultimate goal for everything we do, right? Because in another part of that video, he talks about the market or the state, right? Yeah. He's talking about there are two ways that you go about this. You have the market do it or you have the state do it. So what can we do? We can legislate and we can tell these companies to do good. How successful is that? Right. So I I don't, and I didn't watch the entire hour and 15 minute video. Yeah, I'll put a um, link to it on the show notes if you're interested. Um, you know, what is, and I didn't get to the part where he tells us what the solution is other than the market. <laughs> or the state, um, you know, how do we get to the point where we where we get people to do this on their own for good motivation? Um, what is the solution other than profit? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And, and I guess this is the third episode in a row then that we'll be quoting. Someone will be quoting either Jameson or Zizek. We're not sure who's actually responsible for this. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? Uh, there's, there's just, uh, I think that that's a, a true problem that we're all facing. Um, and one of the ways in which this movie is actually super interesting, I think. And, and, and I think that, um, um, I want to kind of push us towards the end. We are heading up to an hour. I'm going to try to keep us as close to an hour as possible. Um, uh, Tech, uh, my friend Seth Perry keeps texting me, um, teasing me about how long the show goes. And so I'm going to try to show him up this time if I can. Um, so, but, uh, Kristen had mentioned the idea of subsidiary, subsidiarity, um, and this idea of making decisions on as small a level as possible, basically, right? Um, as a way of, to me now, if I go back to my marks, this is a way of overcoming overcoming market fetishism in which the human subject sort of is replaced by its exchange value, right? And so you have no personal relationship with the person. It's just the monetary exchange, my labor for your pay and um, my pay for your product and that sort of thing. Um, subsidiarity is a way, I think, to overcome that and actually put human faces to rehumanize us in our market. Um, exchanges, right? And I think that, you know, in theory, that it, I think that it, uh, it, 
It works for me, right? Uh, and it reminds me of our mutual friend, Susanna Black. I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about um, distributism and, uh, and whatnot? Oh, geez. I'm not much of an expert on that. Um, but it is generally, uh, especially coming out of the earliest, early 20th century, an attempt to find sort of a middle path in between uh, socialism and uh, and unfettered market capitalism. Yeah, uh, where uh, where there isn't some overarching state control, but neither are there neither is there space for the Gilded Age and robber barons to develop. Um, that. Uh, there was capitalism, absolutely, but on the local, small, family, small business sort of level. Yeah. Um, yeah, they believe where, very wholeheartedly in private property, right? But, absolutely. But widely absolutely. distributed. Where people are still engaged in their local communities. Um, it's it, We are not talking about global corporations, uh, but uh, small businesses engaged in the local, in the local city. Um, that uh, that that keep a human face on things, I guess, is the 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 major point to come up with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I, I don't entirely understand um, distributism. I would love to have someone come on the show and just have a show an episode about that. If somebody was listening and wants to. Um, uh, make an argument for distributism. Um, I mean, more than happy. My initial skepticism, I guess, is similar to what I just said. I don't know how you have the the elements of capitalism, but not end up with global capitalism. Like me I, either. I, I, me I don't, either. I, it <laughs> That's seems, kind of what I'm saying. I'm yeah. not for capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just don't know how we end it. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like if you know we have all of these pieces it's going to assemble itself into what we have and i don't know how you get in the way of that and i would that would love to ask that of someone who actually is an adherent to the um to the to the cause there and i know that like great writers like gk chesterton he's sort of associated with that with that Absolutely. movement gk chesterton and hilaire Bullock are like the two big names for that yeah yeah so i mean and you know if mccarthyism ever comes back they're coming for us first because we just <laughs> said it on air it's recorded so. yes well i've been on i'm sure i'm on all kinds <laughs> of lists at this point but uh um so um um but i wanted to like one thing recently Susanna black uh made a really interesting argument about this movie and one particular line that stood out to her was when um spider-man peter parker who's your friendly neighborhood spider-man for those of us who grew up reading it um that's kind of become a joke in the marvel cinematic universe like tony stark uses it as like a, a a derisive turn uh you know term to uh limit peter's influence so he's actually not important he's only a friendly neighborhood spider-man um and so peter in this movie says when he gets on the spaceship um well what's the good you can't be a friendly neighborhood spider-man if there is no neighborhood right and so um Susanna's little twitter it wasn't a storm. There were only like three tweets, but the little Twitter conversation that she had, um, basically she said that that's a really good, um, aspect of um, subsidiarity. It isn't just that you only work at the local level, but you work at whatever level is necessary to work at. Right. Um, and so in the case of Thanos and 
Squidward kidnapping Doctor Strange, the level that was required was for him to go into space, this cosmic level, right? Not far, as far from the local level as you can get. Um, and, and I think that that's a really, um, Great point with, you know, the books like the Benedict option that, uh, th- that are calling for this kind of withdrawal from the grand public sphere and into this more localized space. And, and then you have other people, you know, dear friends of mine, even who are kind of sick of the evangelical right, basically ruining Christianity. <laughs> uh, they want to completely withdraw from politics altogether. Right. And, and I think that there's a temptation to do that, uh, in our world. Right. And this, that moment in this movie reminds me that to withdraw from politics is in some sense to not be good stewards. I think I got this from you actually, Kristen, uh, on a previous tweet storm from that I was involved in later or earlier months ago. But I mean, there's a stewardship question here. It's like we happen to be live in a time in which democracy is available to us and we can vote and we can, you know, uh, lobby for votes and that sort of thing. And we kind of have a, a, a responsibility, I would think, to actually be good stewards of that right, right? Um, it's not an end in of itself, but as a means to this greater good. And I would use that um, little moment where Peter um, abandons the neighborhood uh, as a way of being a good steward, right? And I think that, I think there's something about we're just at a moment where it's tempting either to go whole hog into the wrong kind of politics or completely withdraw. And I both think both are irresponsible. I think that this idea of subsidiary, subsidiarity, um, which comes from distributism, um, I think is actually something worth considering. Uh, and, and I think putting the human face on creation is what Thanos doesn't do. Right. And I think that that's kind of uh, the root cause of his, of his evil moving on then um to the the conclusion of this episode um i i do want to ask you guys for some recommendations here um and then i think kim has a really great quote to to close us on um and just for something to think about i again uh if it sounds like i hated this movie i did not hate it i liked it very much i push back on people who think it's great i think it's flawed in many ways but it is the most interesting marvel movie i think um and there's just so much to pull out of the dilemma that Thanos causes the universe here. And I, I think I've had a really great conversation with both you guys. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Kim, uh, what, what was, what is it that you found that you want to talk about here? Um, so I found a quote, it was in the, um, I'm sorry, Laudato C. Um, and it was, he, he's talking about Bartholomew. He says at the same time, Bartholomew has drawn attention to the ethical and spiritual roots of environmental problems, which require that we look for solutions, not only in technology, but in a change of humanity. So I guess that's our answer and how we can solve capitalism. Um, otherwise, we would be dealing merely with symptoms. He asks us to replace consum- consumption with sacrifice, greed with generosity, wastefulness with a spirit of sharing, and asceticism with, which, quote, entails learning to give and not simply to give up. It is a way of loving, of moving gradually away from what I want to what I want to what God's world needs. It is liberation from fear, greed, and compulsion, end quote. As Christians, we are also called, quote, to accept the world as a sacrament of communion, as a way of sharing with God and our neighbors on a global scale. It is our humble conviction that the divine and the human meet in the slightest detail in the seamless garment of God's creation in the last speck of dust on our planet. I thought that was, um, like, very beautiful. And it relates to so many 
tangents of this conversation we just had, right? I mean, there's so many facets of this conversation that that really relates to. Um, thank you, Kim, for that. That was great. Um, and thank you, uh, Kristen, for uh, kind of getting this whole ball rolling a few weeks ago. <laughs> and, oh, and I'm going to link to a, a blog post that Kristen wrote too. Um, we haven't talked about that. Kristen, should I make that my recommendation? Uh, do you want to talk? <laughs> do you want to, do you want to talk about your blog post? Oh, um, it, it's really a lot of what I said on the last, last episode. Um, but, uh, jumping off from the, the general theme and, the, the villains project here in Infinity War and uh, comparing that with uh, two relatively recent works. One is um, a 2007 book called The World Without Us, yeah. uh, which describes, it, it's a thought experiment um, describing what might happen uh, environmentally if human beings just sort of disappeared. Um, and it seems to sort of have a sense of, well, it's, it's descriptive, but it also seems to have a sense of wistfulness, like, <laughs> wouldn't that be lovely? And is, can't we hope for this? Yeah. Um, and and comparing that with uh, Laudato Si, which is saying this is identifying the wrong problem. Yeah. It actually reminds me, actually, just as you were describing it this time, of that great Twilight Zone episode, um, Time Enough at Last, uh, where the guy finally has no more people. Yes. There's some atomic war or something, right? And he comes, emerges, uh, and, and all he wants to do is read, right? And so he finally, all these pesky people are gone, and he can just be happy uh, with his books, and he immediately shatters his glasses, right? And he's so... <laughs> um, and if there was an optometrist around, that would be no problem. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? Um, yeah, that was great. And I put a, I will put a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes notes um uh, put a notes there yeah uh a note for myself for i don't forget to do that recommendations do you guys have any um i know i sprung it on you a bit late um well i've been catching up on the second season of handmaid's tale and um i think the season two episode two the the closing of that and i don't want to spoil um too much but i mean if you're at all familiar it's a I think you'd call it a dystopian society. Uh, um, but, but I think very religious and, but mixed, messed up religion. <laughs> um, and then the main character, June or Alfred, um, is, is kind of wrestling with religion because of how messed up it is. And, and the, the last like two minutes of that episode, um, I think is, is very beautiful. Um, just the, with the way that she's wrestling with, with religion. But I, I just think that's, it's just a very fascinating, the whole series. I'd like to read the book too, but um, the whole the season one and season two are very beautiful. It's on Hulu, right? Dark, yeah. dark, but beautiful. Yeah. I'm, yes, it's I'm told Hulu. it's quite disturbing actually. Yeah, so yeah. It's very disturbing. Um, so there we go. Uh, Handmade Sale season two on Hulu. Season one first, but then season two. Yeah. And I guess season one is pretty tied to the book and season two is kind of released from that constraint through season one thing two. i've heard is that season one um like the book is very much anything that she sees um you you only see it from her point of view whereas in the the series you see it from other people's point of view so anything that's anything that's an escape from the book anything in the series that you see from somebody else's point of view is is an escape from the book yeah yeah i see so. um kristen anything uh, across your radar right now 
Well, I would definitely recommend reading the entirety of Laudato Si. It is freely available on the internet. Um, less than 200 pages, but they're, the way it's laid out, there's not all that much text on a page. So maybe 75 to 100 normal size pages. So it's, it's not that hard to get through. Um, and then another document I would recommend that would oh, just sort of um, lay a wider context that Laudato Si is part of would be a, a John Paul II document called uh, Centesimus Annus from, I think it's 1989, give or take a couple years maybe, um, which is a, a very good introduction to Catholic social teaching in the more contemporary era. Um, also easily available for free just by Google, and I'm sure we can include some links. Yeah. So check those two out. Yeah, I will. Um, I'll check the spelling after we hang up, and then I will uh, put that in the uh, in the show notes. And and I guess I do have one besides Kristen's post, um, and it, I'm going to go totally lowbrow with mine. <laughs> but I've been obsessed with this TV Land uh, television program called Teachers uh, recently, <laughs> and uh, Kim and I watched this at night, and it is as like it's very body. Uh, so I mean, there's some like rude humor and 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 content um but i feel like that has such a punk rock aesthetic and it is actually saying something really smart um i cannot figure out exactly what it is but i can't take my eyes off the screen that show is just obsessive to me uh and season three is about to come out and i know on our cable system the first two seasons are on demand right now so we've been watching our way through those uh and it is uh it's some of them are just outwardly i mean just overtly hilarious um and they're all cringy they will make <laughs> all of them will make you squirm a little bit um but i, I i'm loving the show teachers so um anybody uh who's listening uh, thank you, first of all, for uh, for sticking with us through this uh, hour and ten minutes. Doggone it, I almost made it. Uh, uh, episode, our second episode on Infinity War. Um, please do uh, talk back to us. If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you can find uh, links to the show notes there, and you can comment right there. I really recommend and ask people to go like the Facebook, <laughs> the Facebook page. <laughs> Paging Dr. Freud, uh, the Facebook page, and uh, and to uh, and to comment there, I think that that does something to Facebook's algorithm, and more people find the show that way, and it kind of opens up the conversation uh, in great ways. And so, I uh, the point is though, I want to hear from you. I've I learned so much from the folks who uh, appear on the show and and who um, and who do give us notes afterwards. Uh, the conversations that follow these have been great, and so I, I appreciate all of you. Uh, I do this uh, without profit in mind. Uh, keep that in mind. There's no uh, there's no boxed monthly good commercials for this podcast there's no patreon account there's nothing like that uh so there's uh, it's just us in conversation so take part of that conversation uh and uh, and i'd love to hear from you um by all means keep keep in touch with us um and so for uh kim anderson and for kristen philippic uh thank you for joining us uh, i am danny anderson of mount aloysius college signing off with another episode of the sectarian review podcast mm-hmm.